Born and raised in L.A., Stevie Ray Hernandez is one of the most sought-after young percussionists in Hollywood. His credits read like a list of dream gigs, performing with the Philharmonic Orchestra under Gustavo Dudamel and John Williams. He's also played with the Golden State Pops Orchestra and artists such as Dionne Warwick, Robin Thicke, Kelly Clarkson, John Legend, Michael Buble, Daddy Yankee, Luis Fonsi, Sarah Bareilles, Johnny Mathis, whom I've also played with, with Reggie Watts, Tiger, Kid Cudi, Camila Cabello, and Kanye West. Yes, he's got his hands in every genre, and I love that about Stevie. You can also catch him playing on TV shows like The Late Late Show with James Corden, American Idol, The Voice, America's Got Talent, Dancing with the Stars, X Factor, and The Mandalorian. Check out how Stevie Ray Hernandez has created such a high demand for his work right here only on the Career Musician Podcast. Stevie Ray Hernandez, welcome to the Career Musician Podcast, my friend. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So no introduction is necessary to your boy Eric G here. What up? <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> and uh, I'm really glad for that Eric connected us. Thank you, Eric G, for that. Yep. He was telling me about some of your shenanigans growing up in the scene, and uh, sounds like you guys had a blast. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I met Eric, I met you, was it late high school or college? I think it was college, right? We met in college. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we had a lot of mutual friends because we were friends with the, the Gahate family. So, uh, like, our, our close mutual friend was Tristan Gahate and uh, Roland Gahate. So we got to know each other through those peeps. And, like, we ended up bonding over Latin music because of that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I love that uh, Eric is a huge proponent of Latin music everywhere he goes. He's like, yo, Latinos, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Stevie is one of my go-to drummers for any genre. Oh, I like, love it. Yeah. If I need a jazz trio, I mm. call Stevie. If I need, a, you know, timbales for a salsa band, I call Stevie. It's, he's, he's the guy, man. <laughs> Bro, it's awesome. And that's just testament to the fact that you've honed your, uh, you know, versatility. That's, that's so important, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, going to CSUN, like, uh, or Cal State Northridge, like, the teacher that I had there was very big on, like, learning how to do a lot of different things as opposed to just, like, sticking to one thing, like, like just being a jazz drummer or just being a, you know, a classical musician. Right. So... I learned how to do a lot of different things. Like I studied, my main thing there was classical music, but I was also in like some of the jazz combos and like the Latin band going there, you know? So I got to experience a lot of different styles of music going to CSUN. And I mean, that's why I was like really fortunate and really grateful for that school because it taught me the value of like learning a lot of different things especially like in Los Angeles, because it's, it's really valuable to, to know a lot of different styles of music as opposed to just like sticking to one thing. Right. Mm. Man, I, I couldn't agree more. I've had the same experience going to a good music school. And I know Eric has, and obviously so many of us in the business, that is the thing. And you know what? There's nothing like a great music teacher who speaks into your life. It's just... Mm -hmm. Right. There's, you know, there's no, there's uh you can't put a, a price tag on that. I mean, I hate to sound like a commercial, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was very fortunate to have the teachers that I had there. Um, one of the main one guys was a guy named Jerry and he passed away, but he, he like made, he was, a uh, he made it, he made me understand like the value of like, being versatile, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I love the fact that your background is in classical, which tells me that you're a great reader. Um, and you also understand dynamics really well. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, uh, I've had the pleasure of working, uh, with some orchestras and, and, uh, you know, modern ensembles combined. And one of the biggest things is, you know, you always have to tell the drummer, Hey man, 
you better watch the conductor and pay attention to, you know, the, the dynamics that are happening in the moment, because mm-hmm. if you just start blaring away, you're going to kill the whole thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very different thing playing drum set in an orchestra as opposed to playing like a rock band or a pop band. Yeah. Like you said, like always watching the conductor and keeping keeping in mind, like the dynamics that are going on. Um, Absolutely. But I remember the first time I was in college, uh, the first time I ever played drums with an orchestra. And I was like, this is, this is totally weird. I, I don't understand how to do this. Because yeah. I was just so used to being in like a garage rock band, just like, ah, you know, <laughs> wailing on the drum. <laughs> right. But then you had to like look at your music and look at the conductor and make sure you're playing the right dynamic. And Sometimes the strings are like way behind you, but you got to like stay solid. And, you know, it's your job to like be the rock that everyone anchors onto in the group. Man, that's, that's so true. And, you know, the strings by nature have a latency and attack. That's just the mm-hmm. nature of the instrument, right? Where, whereas like the brass is always right on the one usually, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, and of course, the drummers, you guys have to hold the pocket down. It's tough, man. I, I definitely, I can definitely relate to that. Talk about, you know, also playing in the, in the percussion section of an orchestra because, bro, your credits are beautiful. L.A. Phil, Golden State Pops, John Williams. I mean, the list goes on. You know, I, again, I, I think that's an excellent foundation to build upon. Yeah, I mean, playing in a percussion section is... It's different than being like a Latin percussionist because right. you're always adjusting to the time. So, like, the in an orchestra, like, the time's kind of fluid. So that that was always the biggest challenge for me as a as a section percussionist in an orchestra especially like playing at a venue like the Hollywood Bowl because everyone's so spread out and you're in this giant it's all it's like this giant like uh like a it's almost like you're in a barn and you right. can't like like the the strings are like 50 feet away from you and you can't even hear what they're playing but you got to play with them so it's definitely like a very like um, unique experience, like getting used to listening to the group and learning how to play with them. But my favorite is like when they have a click track, because then I don't have to worry about that as much. Yeah. And, <laughs> so like and, the last, the last oh, concerts I did at the bowl, I, I had the last one I did was Coco. Oh. Uh, and everyone was on click track. So that that was awesome. You you were working with Jermaine Franco, my buddy. Well, what did he do? Was she there? Uh, she, uh, she, was, she yeah, she was part of the composer for that score. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. She oh, okay. she worked with John Powell for years, and then she now she's branched out and she's you know composing her own stuff. Um, what a sweetheart and such a talented composer. I'm guessing she was there, maybe, but you know, I guess you just didn't meet her that night. Yeah, I mean, there were so many people there. It was like right. hundreds of people on that stage. Isn't it crazy but, uh, when you do orchestra dates, all literally hundreds of people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the orchestra stuff, like, you, there's, it's like, it's kind of like being in high school. There's like cliques, like, and people right. like stick to their cliques. That's so, true. like, there will be gigs where, like, I'm like, wow, I, I gigged with you and I never even knew that. Like, I've, played with this person like 20 times and I've maybe said hi to them like once. That's so funny. <laughs> Eric and I were just talking about that. Dude, there's, actually, uh-huh. there's actually a story of when you and I were on the same soundstage and we didn't even know it until later on the day. That's right. Um, when I was teaching and I brought my choir to come sing for you guys with Alan Menken. Yeah, that's and then, right. And then I posted on Instagram and I was in the picture. <laughs> And you guys didn't even know it that day? We didn't know we, were, we, we would have said hi. Uh-uh. <laughs> we had no idea. That just goes to show you what big productions are like, you know? <laughs> you know, and that's something, that's something cool to, to tell the listeners maybe who haven't experienced it yet. Um, you know, a big production is quite the feat to pull off, obviously, you know, pre-pandemic and, and post-pandemic. We'll get back to it, I believe. But um, there's so many moving parts and logistics that are involved. Yeah, like... Coco, for instance, um, 
there was one night of rehearsal. We did like a three hour rehearsal and we played the same song for two hours. Wow. Yeah. Just because they wanted to get all the staging right. So it was funny by the time, because they did, they did the show for, for Disney plus. Right. So they did all these extra songs for Disney plus aside from the actual movie. Right. So, um, there Disney was more concerned with the extra songs than with the actual movie score. Mm. So they were, they rehearsed the heck out of like these like five songs. And then the movie score, by the time we got to the actual show, we only ran the movie score in, in, in entirety, like maybe one time. So everyone was just like on edge. Like, we're like, how is this going to go? All right, let's go for it. <laughs> wow. And, and that's, that's something to be said about that too. I feel like sometimes when, as a, as again, as a professional musician, uh, sometimes when there's no rehearsal involved or very little rehearsal, uh, it puts us almost in a better headspace. Like we know, we just know that we can't fuck up. So like our focus is mm-hmm. dream, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, hyper focus. I I do remember being like hyper focused during that performance. I mean, there was two shows, yeah. So the second one, we were all a little bit more relaxed because we we're like, all right, last night went okay, so right, we got we got this one now. <laughs> right. What's your favorite instrument in the percussion section of an orchestra? What's your favorite instrument to play? Uh, probably the timpani. Nice. Yeah, just because uh, they have like the most power. Right. It's and like being because they're like the embodies. <laughs> yeah <laughs> giant ones yeah. that too i could go on the side how <laughs> <laughs> you do a little cascada on the side of the timpani that's nice well that's where timpani has come from the history is come, uh, comes from from timpani see look at that yeah i love that i think uh in the caribbean they they saw the european orchestras and they had uh kettle drums and so they copied them wow how cool yeah. is that what I wonder what time period that that initially took place. Do you guys know? Yeah, maybe like seventeen, eighteen hundreds. Wow, when, mm-hmm. when we were getting crossover from Africa. Right, it's incredible. I love the history of the of the music and you know and how it's really. I mean, geez, it's so horrible. But if we didn't have the African slaves come over, we wouldn't have the incredible music that we have today. Right? It's like it's a mind boggling thing to actually uh, contemplate. You know. Yeah, I mean, so much great music came from that con- or that continent. Like, right? It's it's incredible when you think about it. Like, like you said, like the stuff that went to Brazil and right, the Caribbean and Peru, yeah. and right? It's, and, and, yeah. and, and Cuba and Puerto Rico. I mean, all the islands. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. So, and speaking of that, tell us a little bit about your heritage. Uh, I mean, I I'm a I'm a Mexican kid from the valley. nice but yeah my my great-grandparents uh i think on both sides came from mexico okay so by the time i got they got to my generation i was pretty americanized Mm. but my dad was uh my dad was very like east la chicano and my mom was just like valley mexican chick you know (laughs) (laughs) but like i i got to experience a lot of different music growing up because of my dad i was gonna say that what what inspired you musically and what when um, when did the bug bite you you know i remember specifically when the bug bit me it was i was my grandma gave me a a walkman this was in the 90s remember those things i used to have (laughs) several walkmans yeah (laughs) and uh she gave me one for christmas and i didn't know what to listen to and i i think it was like i was in like third grade at the time and all the kids around me were listening to like dr dre and snoop because that was like the the new thing sure and i was just like i wasn't into it uh, so I remember like walking in my neighborhood or like being close to like my neighborhood and seeing a sign, a billboard that said K Earth 101. And I was like, what the heck's K Earth 101? So I 
I dialed that in on the radio and it was just like the oldie station. So it was like all Motown and like 50s music and Beatles. And like that was when the bug bit me when I heard like Motown and the Beatles. I was like, oh man, this is the shit. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Like I became such a diehard Beatles fan. Like when I was like nine years old, like I got all the records, got, got, I mean, CDs were big at the time. So I got like all the CDs going. My dad had a vinyl collection. I started pulling out like Marvin Gaye. Yes. Uh, Stevie Wonder, all the old, old Motown records. Man. So, so that was when the bug bit me for sure. Like when I was like third grade, eight, nine years old. That's amazing, man. Now, how did you go from that to actually gigging? Like what was your, what, what was the, you know, the first gig that you did maybe, or how did you get into the scene? Quote unquote. Well, you know, like I did junior high band. Ah, yeah, so that yeah. was like the next step. And then in high school, I was really into like marching band. Mm. So like I got really into drums because, well, <clears throat> when I was 10, I got a guitar and then my dad was an amateur drummer. So we always had drums around the house. So I learned both of them growing up. I learned how to play a little bit of guitar and drums. But then in high school, like I started getting really into drums and then I met Roland and the Gahate family. And then, and then it kind of like escalated from there. But I, I think the first gig I did is I think we like played at a cafe, like my freshman or sophomore year of college. We would just like casually play jazz music at a cafe. I remember that being like one of the first gigs I ever did. And I was just like, oh man, this is fun. And I'm actually making some money playing music. This because this is weird. I, I never thought I could do this. I never thought you could make money from playing a, playing a musical instrument. <laughs> Isn't that a trip? And, and, and especially at that age, like you're talking about, um, you know, you could go out and make 50 bucks, 75 bucks, 100 bucks in one night mm -hmm. as, you know, as a young teenager. And, you know, your buddies who are doing a newspaper route, it takes them a week to earn that much money, you know? Yeah, I remember... I, when I was in high school, I worked at Target. Right. And, you know, you work all week, like 20 hours. And then, like, I see my check is like 150 bucks. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after, like, doing a gig where you're, like, playing with your buddies for, like, three hours, you make 100 bucks. It's like, you, you never want to turn back, you know? It's a trip, man. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, okay, like I said, going back to your resume, I love the fact that you've done a lot of TV work, some movie work, um, and, you know, some, of course, like we said, the orchestral work. But now, as Eric said, and you were talking about earlier, you play both drum kit, classical percussion, and Latin percussion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the things, like, tell us a day in the life of Stevie Ray Hernandez <laughs> you were coming up and practicing and making sure that you touched on all those things so you can be ver as versatile as you are today. You know, what was your, what was your routine or your schedule like? How did you manage that? Honestly, like it came in waves. Like there's some, there were like some months where I was really into just playing timpani. Hmm. So then I just practiced timpani for like a month and not really focus on much else. Smart. And then so you were immersed in immersing yourself in, in mm -hmm. yeah. And then there would be like months in college, I remember, where all I wanted to play was conga drum. And then like my teachers would get upset with me because then I wouldn't practice like my assignments for my lessons because I, all I was doing was playing like wah wah ko in the practice rooms. I love that. That was great. <laughs> so, like, that was the thing for me. Like I, I would focus on different things at different times, but like everything's kind of related, especially like when you're playing with sticks, like keeping your rudiments up and like just on a pad, like will filter into everything, you know, mm. it'll filter into your drum set playing. It'll filter into like, if I had to play xylophone or like timpani, um, timbale playing. So, I would always make sure to have a good foundation with like just keeping 
my chops up on like playing like rudiments and like basic stuff like that. Right. Mm. That's awesome. So, so look, versatility, you know, um, education and then just perseverance, right? Those are three ingredients to having a successful career, I believe in the music Mm -hmm. business. But what, what most people want to know, you know, and let's talk about maybe the young, the young kids coming up in middle America or anywhere around the globe who don't live in Los Angeles. What they want to know is how the hell do I break into the scene and get a real gig, you know? So mm-hmm. it's so funny because I've been asked this question countless times and there is no real formula. It's not like we could say, well, X plus Y equals gigs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but tell us about how you broke into the scene again with your orchestral background, your R&B and pop artist, you know, uh, Kelly Clarkson, John Legend, Michael Bublé, you know, uh, da- Daddy Yankee, Luis Fonsi, you know, I mean, the list goes on. And then the TV shows, American Idol, Dancing with the Stars. How did you really break into the scene and how did you manage to get into that upper echelon of working mu- musicians? Um, you know, I always thought about this. And for me, it was always just like, relationships and like friendships and like for i always tell people like if you want to do a certain type of gig like kind of like investigate and see like who are the people that are doing this gig mm-hmm. and it's try to befriend these people and that but it's like the hardest thing is like how do I become friends with these people genuinely as opposed to like forcing a friendship, you know, that's That's always, that's the hardest thing to like learn how to balance that. I, I mean, I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm good with it. And sometimes I feel like I struggle with it, but I'm sure like every musician feels that way at some point, Uh, but absolutely. Right? We've yeah. all been there. That's like every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it's always been, yeah, like developing relationships with people. And the orchestral scene is is kind of different because a lot of that scene comes from like, it's almost like an apprenticeship. Like the people that you study with kind of bring you into the scene. That's so right. That makes developing sense. Developing like relationships with the people that are doing the jobs and like in the orchestras, like almost becoming like their apprentice and developing like a teacher student relationship. And like, I have always found like that in that scene, that that's kind of like the way it works. Right. And, and, and from what I've seen, I mean, maybe other people have seen different things. No, that makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you said the R word, the relationships, because honestly, that's what it's all about. And, you know, Again, I'm always cognizant of our listeners who don't live in L.A. or New York or Nashville who want to come to these cities and really take a stab at their career. We we can't stress enough that the relationship is where it all stems from. It has Mm -hmm. to kind of has to be organic, which I know sucks because that takes time. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah, that's always been a really hard thing for a lot of people I've seen is like developing these relationships but making it organic to the point where like oh yeah this person is really my friend and i can trust them you know right right well trust is another big element right Mm -hmm. yeah um talk about the difference again going back to your versatility talk about maybe the mental preparation or even the technical preparation going from an orc gig to a pop gig you know, you're you're jamming with Luis Fonsi on one <laughs> on one night, <laughs> you know, and doing uh, a scoring uh, an orchestra date with John Williams conducting the next night. You know, I mean, boy, what what? How do you prepare? Uh, I'm trying to think. Like last year, I was all over the place. Like in one week, I did a session, and then I was at the Coco rehearsals all week. And then right before the Coco concert, I was at a TV show rehearsal, like pop band rehearsal all day. So it's really weird. Like 
I've just gotten so used to like changing hats for different things that I don't even think about it anymore. I love but, it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, right, yeah, we're going to have to make that. We're going to have to <laughs> firm that one up. <laughs> you got to change hats. That's what it's all about, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I guess I've just gained so much experience the last decade. Like, it's not really something I think about too much anymore. Mm. But um, I do know, like, for me, like, when I go to, like, a, an orchestral type gig, the best thing for me is to show up as early as I can and make sure, like, I'm situated with all the gear and then, like, also make sure that I get a chance to, like, read through the music and know what's coming before. I actually, um, you know, like they press record and you actually have to play, you know? Right. Do you try to read through it? Uh, well, I guess, you know, oftentimes you don't get the music at home. Uh, probably you just get it right on set, right? Yeah. Um, especially for like, if you're doing a TV or like movie session, like that stuff, usually you just, you show up and it, you got to play it. Yeah. Talking about being in the hot seat. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so for like the TV stuff, like I just make sure that um, before I get to the gig, I I am very familiar with the tunes that we're going to play. And then I usually like, I have an iPad, so I, I map out on the charts, like, like I'm, I'm going to play congas in this section or like tambourine in this section just so I have a general idea of like what I'm doing on that gig. And then for like an orchestral gig, I just make sure I show up early enough to like look through the music and make sure I know what's coming. So I'm not too surprised when I get there, you know? Right. Right. You also said something that is so important about showing up early. You know, I believe it's funny. I, I, I say this almost every freaking episode, you know, early, is on time, on time and late, you know, like, yeah. Like if your downbeats at two o'clock and you get there at one forty-five, you're screwed, buddy. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's funny that you say that. Cause I realized last year, cause, um, from like the, the movie scoring session scene, like there's a scene of guys who do that work as far as percussion goes. Right. And, um, what I've realized is like, they have like these uh, unwritten rules that I'm still learning about. And one of them is like, make sure if you're a percussionist, be there an hour early because you got to set up a bunch of gear and you got to go through parts and your section leader has to like assign you what part you're going to play. That's right. So yeah, I mean, it's funny, like in, in these different scenes, there's all these different things that you learn as you gain experience, like, like what, okay, what do I do in this situation? Or like, um, what is my role in this section? And, or what is, uh, like how early am I supposed to be at this gig? You know, it's just, you know, just with experience, you gain knowledge, you know? Absolutely. And and one of the things I like to tell people who haven't done the TV or film work yet, actually, it really doesn't matter what kind of work, but especially when you're going on to the lots, like if you're going to the NBC lot or, you know, the Sony stages or whatever, there's security you have to get through. There's parking, there's designated parking that's usually very far away from the studio that you're actually working in. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if your downbeats at two and you need to be there at one, that means you need to be on the premise by 1230. Yeah. Had that. So between 1230 and one, you can fit, go through security, get your na- your badge and your clearance, find your parking. Right. And then actually be in the studio by one, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, LA, if it's, you know, if 1230, you need to be on premise and depending where you live, you might need to leave at 11, you know? <laughs> and you don't go, you don't downbeat is until two, but you're leaving your house at 11. You know what? Here's what I would say. It's better to be relaxed and acclimated to the environment than, than, than rushing, right? 
Yeah, for sure. That's one thing that I've learned for sure is like just leaving super early, like and getting there super early. Like you're so much more relaxed when you actually have to play. Like you play yes. better. Yes. Mm-hmm. And even if you're like way early, let's say you get there and there's nobody there and and clear security won't clear you yet. Go down mm-hmm. the street to a Starbucks, right? You know? At, yeah. At least you're in the vicinity. You're really close. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, those are my tricks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stevie Ray Hernandez, and I'm a career musician. Being a career musician is more than just gigs and sessions. Are you a career musician? Find out on the Career Musician Podcast, streaming everywhere. Blasting the stereotype of musicians. Follow us at the Career Musician Podcast. Yeah, man. Hey, check it out. Do you have a a mantra that you tell yourself when things get crazy? When When you're in that hot seat, do you say, you know, is there something that you mumble like, you know, internally? You know what's funny is like, uh, you guys are going to laugh at this, but like, um, I'm a big Dodgers fan, right? And a couple years ago, there was a player on the team. His name was Alex Verdugo. And he was a rookie. And I remember seeing him like a couple times he came into the, they brought him up into the game and he killed it. And he, he was totally like one of the most confident guys on the field and like total rookie. and. I remember like the, this last couple of years, whenever I w- I felt like, like, uh, like I was in the hot seat or I was under the gun. I'd always tell myself like, be like Alex Verdugo. See? Alex Verdugo. <laughs> See? That's perfect. That, that's not like a, a, a spoken mantra, but that's a, a, a mental imagery. Mm-hmm. You know, that's perfect. Yeah. That's excellent. So, you know, during this pandemic, it's been difficult for musicians, especially it's been difficult for everybody, but yeah. have you been able to uh, do some work? You know, this I've year? done a couple of things, um, just like little casuals here and there that pop up and then some home recording stuff. Good. And then a couple uh, sessions um, and at like, outside studios and then i i did a couple tv things and that's about it but so it's been it's been you know pretty slim pickings compared to 2019 right right yeah but you're but, set up at home you have a home studio then yeah i got i got stuff going on here um and then i also record out of a I, me and my friend uh have like a little studio thing going on in woodland hills it's uh <laughs> My British drummer buddy, he called it Shabby Road Studios. Shabby Road Studio? Shabby Road, yeah. I like that. I like that. <laughs> now, is this a, a private studio just for you guys, or is it a project studio that you actually have clients? Uh, it's a, just a private studio, and then okay. just record tracks out of there whenever, as needed, with people hit us up, you know? Nice. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, what's your preferred D- DAW? Are you using Pro Tools, Logic, Able? I'm using Logic right now. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. And and, yeah. At, and at home, how do you set up? Do you have a bunch of mics and pre's and everything? Uh, yeah. I mean, I have like a handful of mics here, and then at the at Shabby Road, my buddy has a lot of nice pre's and mics going on there. There you go. There mm-hmm. you go. Mainly, like I have a couple of Neumann condensers that I use here for like hand percussion and mallets. If I need to do like drum set stuff, I'll go to his space. Nice. Nice. Where do you find that you're recording the most? Oh, that's a good question. Like right now, of all the things that you, that you play or in the, the, the percussion section, you know, like what, what are you getting? The most what are I, I probably record like tambourine, conga and shaker the most <laughs> out of anything. Let's talk about that. That is perfect. <laughs> tambourine, conga, and shaker. So first of all, omit the congas. Tambourine and shaker. 
That is a trip, you know, because people think, man, I'm going to be a drummer and a percussionist and I'm going to play all these wicked cool instruments and I'm going to be so amazing. <laughs> and then you get, you get hired to do this. <laughs> that, I love that because that's such an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I think I play tambourine, especially on the TV stuff, play tambourine more than anything. Bro, <laughs> come on, dude. You're making money playing tambourine and shaker. Like, I know. It's awesome. I love Who them. else can say that, right? Besides <laughs> percussionists. I'm <laughs> uh, supposed to show you how serious the tambourine is. That's right. And, and, and I'm not laughing because those are, those are by no means am, am I implying those are easy instruments to play. Sure, anybody can pick it up and shake it and make a sound. But to play it well and stay in that pocket that's actually hard. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different tricks to the tambourine, and I'm still learning a lot of stuff about it. But especially like that Motown stuff, like a lot of the gospel tambourine, like that stuff's pretty wild if you get into it. Right. But, and the tambourine with the skin on it, so you can bounce it on your other hand. Yeah. And even like, because like I'm, I play orchestral music, orchestral tambourines, it's its own thing too. Totally different technique than any of the other stuff. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And what's the uh, Brazilian version of that? What is it? The bandera? Uh, oh, pandero. Bandero, yeah, pandero. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting too, right? Yeah, I play a little bit of that. I definitely have some friends that are way better at that than I am. That are, are Brazilians, right? But I can I can get by with it. But it's definitely not my my bag there's some people who are pretty amazing at that instrument <laughs> absolutely absolutely man i mean you know if you have people from that who are natives from that area or who studied mm -hmm. it, it makes sense it makes sense um so again going back to the tv and film work you have to be a member of the union in order to do a lot of those gigs um talk about that well the union like Let's see, I joined the union maybe around 10 years ago. And I only joined because I, I was like pretty fresh out of college. And I got a gig uh, sidelining on that TV show, Chuck. You remember that show? Uh, I was, I was uh, the bongo player on a scene from that show. Nice. <laughs> and... Uh, that was like one of my first gigs, like being sidelining on a TV show and they made me join the union to do it. Right. And it's, it's weird because there's a lot of different gigs. Like you don't have to be a member of the union to do like, like, you know, a lot of sessions, like they don't monitor. It'd be like pretty impossible for them to monitor all these different sessions that are going on at home studios. Right. But a lot of the, the major film and TV work is all union. So, yeah, you're, you're going to have to join up for that stuff. But I would say to, like, younger musicians, like, don't join until you have to. Right. Because um, you, you get to do one union gig a year without having to join. So mm -hmm. always remember that. But, but that's a good point. But I always mm -hmm. say once you're locked in, and you're in that scene and you're earning money on union gigs, it's really a great thing because the benefits are amazing with, you know, the, the sound recording special payments. Oh, yeah. Secondary market film fund, mm -hmm. the SAG after AFM funds, right? Yeah. I mean, all that stuff's really nice. Like, that's why uh, doing movie sessions is so coveted because uh, you get all that back end. That's right. It's, Especially if you end up playing on like a major film, like like a John Williams Star Wars score or something, like yeah, you're gonna you're gonna make a lot more money on the back end than than you did recording the actual session on the date. That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's so funny because uh, some of the movies that I've done ten years ago, I'm still seeing those residuals for. So oh, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm getting rich off of it, but there are people, <laughs> like you said, in the LA film and TV scene who have done very well based on on uh, their resumes, right? Yeah, I mean, like that. I guess that check for the movies comes around every July. Yes, and uh, I've heard stories of like, you know, 
people showing up every July to like sessions with like new cars <laughs> <laughs> or, or buying a new house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a, the movie check comes in July, the sound recording special payment, which you get from playing on albums that comes in August. Mm-hmm. And I think the SAG after AFM comes in June. So you have like three months there that you can just know, okay, great. I hope my, my royalty, <laughs> my residuals are going to be good, you know? Uh, but it's important, like you said, it's important for, for people to know this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, listen, you've done a lot. You're still young. You have a whole career ahead of you. How do you define success? How do I define success? Um, I don't know. That's been changing for me recently. Like, used to be doing like certain gigs that I wanted to do for a long time. That That's how I would define like being successful. Like right. for me, like some of the gigs that I always wanted to do were like play, like since I was in junior high, I wanted to play with the LA Phil and I did, I ended up playing with the LA Phil for a summer. And, you know, for me that, that made me feel rather successful as a musician, as a percussionist, you know? Yeah. And then, um, one of my, one of the artists I always wanted to play with was Sarah Bareilles. Yes. And, uh, I ended up on a gig with her. She was singing the little mermaid. I ended up playing the percussion section for that. So, so something like that made me feel really successful, like completing like a goal that I, or like a, a dream gig that I set out to do. But I love that. I, I don't know. It's been kind of shifting. I think more now is just like what uh, what music makes me happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So like lately, like, but I mean, pre-pandemic, I was putting on my own shows in town. Like I, I was putting on a, a, I do a Jeff Buckley night nice. once a year. And we do the whole Grace album um, from, yeah, every track from the Grace album. And I have like guest singers come up and sing each track. And and then I also would put on like a 60s prom show. That's that's the shit right there. I used to, I <laughs> used to go watch good. them do that. Really? Yeah, it was like my favorite. Everybody would dress up like the 60s. So I started realizing doing stuff like that was making me feel more fulfilled than like, playing like a crazy movie session date or something, you know? Right. So I, I think it was just because I was surrounded by musicians that I, I really liked. I, I handpicked everyone that I, that played. And so you would just invite people to be a part uh-huh. of the band? Yeah. And then the audience really dug it. Like, like Eric said, like everyone showed up like dressed in sixties attire, like the Jeff Buckley night. I remember people were coming up to me after the show and like crying because they'd never heard wow. Jeff's music in, in person, you know? Wow. And I tried to, I tried to do all the songs as true to the record as possible. Were you singing and playing guitar or were you playing drums and percussion? Uh, whenever I would do the, my sixties nights, like I was playing drums, uh, for the Jeff Buckley show, I was playing guitar. Nice. And, and music directing. So, I don't know, those things, doing things like that made me feel a little bit more fulfilled than uh, being a freelancer at the moment, you know? Like, so is my, my thought of success has been shifting, you know? Like, what, what is going to make me feel more fulfilled now as, like, a musician? Right. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I'm at a very similar place and uh, it's good to be at that place. Um, mm-hmm. But I do believe for the first part of your career, if, if your goal is to be a career musician, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. You have to just really focus on getting the gigs, you know? Mm-hmm. But like you said, once you've established that, then doing other things for fun and a creative outlet, that's so important. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. So it sounds like that's almost like uh, words of wisdom that you would give somebody pursuing your mm-hmm. path, huh? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, 
I've never been one to like tell people like, Oh, you need to do things this way. But I guess those, like if, if I had to tell like the, my younger self that, right. You know, that, that would be what I would say. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. What would you tell 19 year old Stevie Ray Hernandez? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, um, don't be afraid to fail. I love that. Yeah. So true. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to like fall on your face. Man, I feel like I fail every day, but I'm actually learning, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm, yeah, it's little failures, little little things that just don't work out. Like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I'll try this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there was a lot of times like when I was younger, I wouldn't, I'd be afraid to do things and I just wouldn't do them just because, you know, you're just so afraid right. of like failing, like taking an audition or, right. you know, maybe like trying out a different school or, yeah. you know, go sitting in at, at a certain gig, you know? I'm glad you said that. Sitting in was always one of those things for me that like, ah, I don't want to go sit in. There's going to be so many guys that will you know, shred me to pieces, you know? Mm-hmm. And then every time I said that, but I actually went and sat in, I had the most amazing time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. You just, you just got to do it. Yeah. So yeah, that I'm, Telling my, I would tell my young selves like, like you just, like you said, you just got to do it. Yeah, just go for it. I love that, man. <laughs> hey, Stevie, before we wrap, uh, let's do some rapid fire questions. All right, all right. So, so Eric and I have worked out this little routine here. <laughs> he, he he made me cue cards, which, by the way, I gotta say, this, I like this little team we have, this little duet. <laughs> Has anybody told you that you look a lot like Jimmy Fallon? <laughs> <laughs> Really? You've never heard that one before? Actually, yeah, I get that all the time. Ah, okay. <laughs> you're, pulling, you're pulling my leg. Thank you. Thank you. I like it. <laughs> hey, it's showbiz. But um, <laughs> that is. I, awesome. I mean, yeah, I, I used to get that all the time. Maybe like five. When it, when he, especially when he first started his show, when he was like in the limelight a bunch, like yeah, I, I used to get that all the time. Like, hey. You remind me of somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, it took me like the first five minutes to figure it out internally. And then I was like, I got it. But I also think it's the angle of of the screen that you're looking at us on. You know, it Mm -hmm. looks like it's a little angled down. I don't know. Anyway. Hey, that's not a bad thing, bro. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So are we ready for the rapid? So we're going to give you one minute to uh, tell them the rules, Eric G. All right. You you get one minute and you can try to answer as many questions as you can. And okay. check it out. I got a stack of, of cards here, baby. Look at, that. <laughs> Look at that. I got a stack of cue cards that Eric G made me. So, Whew. all right. I'm all nervous. I shouldn't be nervous. I'm asking, not telling. So I got one minute. I'll tell yeah. you when you get the 10 second mark. Okay, right. you ready? Yeah, count us down from 10. All right. Three, two, one, go. Musical guilty pleasure. Uh, Taylor Swift. Top three artists in your playlist. Sarah Bareilles, Jeff Buckley, John Lennon. Three gig essentials. Um, let's see. Sticks. Um, oh man, this is hard. Sticks, snacks, and uh, a phone to read. What entertains you? Uh, a vinyl player. Your friends would say you are blank. Um, crazy. Studio or live? Studio. Alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Alcoholic. Instrument you wish you played? Um, piano. Piano. Favorite restaurant? And uh, I forgot to give you the ten. Uh, <laughs> but we got to get a buzzer. Yeah, I know. We're, we're working it out. We're favorite restaurant. Favorite restaurant. Um, I don't really have one. I, I guess I like Mambo's Cafe. Mambo's, hey. which reminds me. Tell us, tell us before we wrap. Tell us about the Gahate story at Mambo's. Eric G was just filling me in a little bit. I want to hear it from you. What really happened that night at Mambo's? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just telling him about the way we were dressed. 
Oh, with the the rainbow, the rainbow vest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Richie, the dad, has this. Uh, he has a an old VHS, like an instructional DVD or not DVD VHS right. uh, through LP. That's Richie Gahate. The, yeah, Richie Gahate, the father of Roland Gahate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess the mom thought it would it was a funny idea to make the whole band wear these rainbow vests. <laughs> So we uh we did a concert at Mambo's and we did Richie's album and I I thought it was funny. I was like I told Tristan I was like the brother I was like dude you got to find those vests we got to wear them. So they found them and we all wore the vest and we brought it back. That's <laughs> awesome man. I love that. I love that. Uh hey I used I, I used to love going to Mambo's just to listen to the to the Latin jams, but it is sad that they don't do the music anymore. Uh, I know man. It's a bummer. Myself, I'm half Cuban. My father's from Cuba. And so I got the I got the Latino gene. And this guy right here and I, we've been working out some things. So uh, we'd love to get you involved as well. So hopefully we'll be able to call you for some session work soon. Yeah, that'd be great, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks hey, for having I, me. Of course. Thank you for being on The Career Musician. I forgot to ask you a last question. What would you do if you weren't a career musician? I would either, I would probably be either a lawyer or an engineer. Because when I was in high school, well, one, I really liked to argue (laughs) with my teachers. Um, So they always said I would be a good lawyer. And then I always liked building stuff and I liked math and science. So like, I always had an interest in being like a mechanical engineer. You sound like a ridiculously smart and talented person. (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome bro man thank you so much for being our guest stevie oh thanks for having me guys i appreciate this it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.